We praise you, Father God, for the riches of your word. We praise you that you are our glorious creator. Help us to know more what that means and help us to trust in you and hope in you more and more. For Jesus' glory and honor. Amen. The question I want us to think about this morning is what gives us hope for the future? What gives us hope for the future? It's a pressing question because we know our world can be so fragile and turbulent. We know this in our personal lives. Relationships can be broken and fractured by many things. Our health is fragile. It can come and go. Our jobs can also be transient. Uh, our wider world is turbulent and fragile too. Think of the war in Ukraine and the devastation that has brought. Think of the cost of living crisis and the difficult decisions many are having to make. Political turmoil and upheaval or things like climate change. All of these things and many, many other things show that our world is fragile and turbulent. And so the question, is there hope for the future? is a very pressing one. This question was also pressing for Israel back in uh, the Bible when Psalm 104 was written. They were in exile. They were far away from God's uh, promised land and their future seemed very bleak. They too, like us, uh, lived in a pagan culture hostile to them. They too, like us, were surrounded by the impressive-looking idols of the day. Uh, I like to picture Daniel to help me get to grips with what exile was like. So remember Daniel in the lion's den, or the fiery furnace episode? There was a real pressure to conform to the ways of this world. And God and his promises seemed far away. Their future seemed bleak. And yet here in, in Book 4 in the Psalms, uh, these psalms are written to give us hope, hope for a future. And Psalm 104 helps us by seeing that God is our almighty creator. He is majestic and awesome. So Yahweh, the Lord, uh, in capitals there, uh, that was their God. He was the God from Exodus who'd rescued them. But Psalm 104 helps us to see that God is not only the rescuing God, but the creator God of everything. So he is not some small, uh, made-up God who is distant and powerless. No, he is the creator of everything who is with them in this, in this time. And so his power and his purposes cannot be overturned. That's what we'll see this morning. And so Psalm 104 helps us to see God's majesty as the creator. And it picks up on lots of language from Genesis 1. Uh, you might have noticed that as we, we read that this, uh, this morning. And so the headline is in verse 1 and 2. Praise the Lord as creator, as creation shows his majesty. Let's read verse 1 and 2 together. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. So verse 1 is the headline for this psalm. The psalmist wants us to see God's awesome uh, majesty. And it's only when we see God's majesty will our hearts sing with praise. It's only when we see God's glory that our problems will appear smaller. 
And it's only when we see God's majesty will we see that there is hope uh, for us and hope for the future. But the question is, how do we see God's majesty? God is invisible to us. We cannot see him. He is outside of creation, ruling over it. If he were to show himself in all his glory and splendor, we would burn up in his presence. His holiness is so bright, so awesome, so intense, that we cannot gaze upon the Lord and live. And so, how can we see God's majesty? Well, the psalmist says, look at what God wears. Look at what he wears. So we see this in normal life. We know what people are like by the clothes they wear. Uh, My wife, Laura, is unwell today, but if she were, uh, you would see what sort of person she's like. She is beautiful and artistic and creative by the clothes she wears, whereas I am not. You can tell those things by looking at my clothes. And so what does the Lord wear? Verse 2, he wraps himself in light as with a garment. The psalmist says that if we need to see the majesty of God, he says, look up at the heavens. Look all around you. Light is a shorthand for the whole of the created order. It was the first thing God made in Genesis 1. In, in Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter, the, the hero, he has an invisibility cloak where he cl- clothes himself with that and it hides himself from view. Whereas God has a visibility cloak. He uses creation to show us what he is like. John Calvin writes, We cannot see God, but must cast our eyes upon the very beautiful fabric of the world in which he wishes to be seen by us. So we just know from the world how beautiful our world is. We know this from mountaintop experiences. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain uh, and seen stunning views from the summit. Uh, Last year I went climbing up Mount Snowden with John Fenton, and it's a stunning view from up there. You can see for miles and miles around, like lakes and forests and beautiful trees and mountains in the distance and sort of stunning light uh, sort of shining through uh, the, the scenery. And a stunning view like this helps us glimpse the majesty of God. When we see a glorious, colorful sunset or a sky full of stars, often we are just stopped in our tracks and we say, wow. I don't know if you've had a situation like that recently. And this morning in the psalm, the Lord wants to stop us in our tracks. And so we say, wow when we see his majesty, or in the words of the psalm, verse 1, Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. What often amazes me uh, when I see wonderful things in this world is they are but pale comparisons to the glory of the Lord. So a stunning sunset is but a faint glimmer of God's majesty. And so we've seen the headline for the psalm, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord as creation shows his majesty. And the rest of the psalm will help us to see the different aspects of God's majesty. And the psalmist takes us on a grand tour of the whole world. And we're just going to have a look and see God's majesty on display. So we'll see his power in verses 2 to 9. His majestic generosity in 10 to 23. Then his wisdom in 24 to 26. And all of these things, his his power, his generosity, his wisdom, they're all interconnected, interrelated. 
but we'll look at each of them in turn. So firstly, praise the Lord for his majestic power. I love how God's power is described in the end of verse 2. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. So picture the enormous universe that we live, live in, a world full of galaxies and supernova and everything. God stretches them out like a tent with the same ease uh, that an experienced camper would set up their campsite. So God sets up creation like a tent. And then he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. And so he's saying the skies above are filled with the storehouses of, of rain and snow and hail. These mighty weather systems, they're but little boxes to God in his, in his storehouses. And so God is completely over creation. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Uh, rain and snow and, and lightning do his bidding. But Christians are not deists, that God is somewhere distant. and He set the world up rolling along. No, Psalm 104 pictures God very active in creation. So have a look down at verses 3 and 4. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, planes of fire his servants. So the picture is of the Lord flying around on a chariot throne to show that he is active everywhere in creation. And so what we experience in this world are all the servants and instruments of his will. In verse 5 to 9, we see again God's power at work in restraining the powerful waters of our world. And so it winds back the clock all the way back to the beginning of creation. Let's have a look at verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. We often picture life as a life-giving entity, water as a life-giving entity. But water can also be powerful and threatening. Picture a violent storm on an ocean or great tall waves of a tsunami. For the Israelites, the sea was often a source of chaos and evil itself. And yet, in verse 7, God speaks a cry of command to these, to these terrifying waters. Let's look again at verse 7. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, never again will they cover the earth. And so the earth here is, is a stable, safe place because God has made it so. The times when the, the threatening waters of our world are breached seemingly, so literally in a tsunami or metaphorically in, in wars and terrorism, they show that God is all the time holding back these terrifying waters. He has assigned for them a place which they cannot go. And these, these breaches of, of this power show just that in, in, in any instant, the whole earth could be swallowed up if God were not restraining these powerful forces. And so if God were good, but not all powerful, he wouldn't be able to achieve his purposes. And so the powerful waters that threaten us, they flee at God's command. So the things we are most scared of in this life, job loss, 
relationship breakdown, crippling disease, even death, even the devil. They quake in fear at the power of the majestic God. They quake in fear at the power of God's majesty. Like these waters, they flee at God's command. And so it's one thing to know God's majestic power. We also need to know his majestic goodness. And we see this in verses 10 to 23. So that's our second, second heading. Praise the Lord for his majestic generosity. So the imagery moves from water being life-threatening to water being life-giving. And there's a real sense that God provides for all his creatures uh, with thirst-satisfying water that brings delight and satisfaction. Just look at how many creatures are cared for explicitly in these verses. So we have uh, wild goats, uh, conies or, or badgers. We have donkeys quenching their thirst. Uh, the birds are quenching their thirst as well. All of these creatures are being cared for by God. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? So every creature in this world, the billions and billions of all the animals, they're being cared for by this nourishing water that God provides. Uh, the tour of creation continues in verses 14 to 15. Let's see. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants the man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, and wine that gladdens the heart of man and oil to make his face shine. So not only does God provide all the water that we need, he provides all the food that we need as well. And that's a staggering thing, that everything we, we eat comes directly from the hand of God. That's why saying, uh, saying grace before meals is so, so important, because we recognize that everything we eat, everything we drink, comes from God's hand. Verses 16 to 18, the tour of creation continues. We see the Lord provides homes, places of refuge and safety for all of his creatures. So let's see. There the birds made their nests, and the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, and the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. So God is providing not only food and water, but homes and refuge. It's an abundance of generous, lavish generosity. Um, I love uh, how the lions are described uh, in verse 21. The lions roar uh, from the, for their prey and seek their food from God. So the lions, the most powerful uh, animals in the animal kingdom, one could argue, here they're described as seeking their prey from God, seeking their food from God. God is describing them as little kittens meowing for their food. It's as though everything, even the most powerful things in this world, they have to look to God's hand for his provision. Uh, the psalmist summarizes this in verses 27 to 30. All creatures look to you to give their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. And so from all this, we can know that the Lord will provide for us, and he does so generously. And so we don't need to worry. In every and any situation, from these verses, we know God graciously and generously provides. Um, Matthew 5 tells us how 
the rain falls not only on the righteous, but on the wicked as well. God provides for everything in his creation, but how much more so does he provide for his children in Christ? And so picture the exiles away from God, away from his promises. God would provide for them. He would one day bring them home. Picture us. God will provide for us too. He will, he will provide every step of the way. That's a great encouragement, uh, isn't it? And so we've seen God's uh, power, that he's able to restrain the powerful waters of this world. We've seen his generosity. But then the psalmist breaks into praise, mid-psalm, verse 24. He praises God for his, his wisdom. That's our third head- heading, his majestic wisdom. Let's look down at verse 24. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The psalmist wants us to stop and pause and think just how many creatures there are in this world. On the land, the earth is full of God's creatures. In the psalm alone, we've had donkeys, birds, cattle, badgers, storks, lions. And all of these are finely tuned to their environment. Each creature God has made is highly specialized and intricately designed. From the smallest dormouse to the largest African elephant, all of these are suited to their environment. Each animal is a masterpiece of God's handiwork. Um, At uni, I studied cell biology as part of my course. And it was amazing to see just how complicated cells are, the things which make up our bodies. So in every cell, there are thousands of proteins working together uh, in synchrony. There are tiny motors in each of our cells, uh, wearing away like millions of times per minute. And they give us energy from food. There are proteins which walk along the transport systems of our cells. So at the smallest level, we see God's intricate wisdom And then at every level in biology, we can see God's wisdom again and again and again. And so the psalmist writes, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Speaking of God's creative wisdom, look how the psalmist continues in 25 and 26. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small, and Leviathan, which he formed to frolic there. Now, the Leviathan, on one level, was a very big sea creature. Picture Nessie swimming around, or something like a blue whale. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, Leviathan was a big, scary monster. He was like the embodiment of evil, the serpent of Genesis 3, or the monster in Job 41. And yet, with deep irony... Psalm 104 describes him frolicking in the sea. He's nothing but a big teddy bear or some clumsy toddler that God has boxed away in a playpen. Which means he has no autonomy, uh, the devil. No power independent from his creator. So like God restrained the powerful chaos in verses 5 to 9, so he restrains the powers of evil. They are all firmly under his control. So even in the uh, wisdom of God, even evil can serve his purposes. Think of the story of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But God used that to bring about salvation of many lives. 
Or think of the cross, where God used the supreme act of evil in murdering his son to bring about the salvation of the world. And so as the psalmist has taken us on his tour of creation, we've seen God's majesty uh, on display. We've seen his immense power, how he restrains the powerful thought forces of our world. We've seen his goodness, how he generously provides in every situation. And we've seen his wisdom, the rich variety of everything he's made. And we as Christians, we have all the more reason to see God's majesty when our creator wrote himself into the pages of human history in the person of Jesus Christ. So just like the Lord, who rebukes the waters in verse 7, Jesus commanded a storm to be quiet in Mark chapter 4. We could go to many places to see that Jesus had the same power as the creator. He could heal the sick. He could restore sight to the blind. He could overturn death. And then we could go to many places to see Jesus' abundant goodness and provision. So he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. He welcomed the marginalized and the downcast. He was the essence of goodness. And again, we could see many places of his wisdom. He baffled the, the teachers of the law, age 12. He refuted the, the, the teachers of the law in his day. And again and again, we see Jesus is supreme in all creation. The reading tells us from Colossians 1 that he is the one through whom all creation was made. It's a staggering thing for a man who walked this earth. We as Christians believe he made the heavens. We believe he died on the cross for us and reconciled this, this whole world to himself. And so how are we to respond to God's majesty, his power, his generosity, his, his goodness? How does the psalmist respond? Well, he finishes by three prayers uh, in verses 31 to 35. Uh, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. We don't often pray this, but it's very important because the whole of this world is dependent on God. And so if he's not rejoicing in his works, then it's a scary thing because that endangers creation. Look at verse 29. When you hide your face, they are terrified. So the only way the earth can draw, if it reflects God's glory, that's a good prayer to pray. Secondly, he prays that he would rejoice uh, in God, his creator. And then the sing in the tale, verse 33, verse 35. May sinners vanish from the earth, and the wicked be no more. God, God is saying he cannot rejoice fully in his works when sin is still present. Uh, sin spoils his good creation. And so this final prayer can only be prayed ultimately in Christ because it would mean our own destruction. He, he can pray that um, sinners would turn to God back in repentance. We can pray that we would hate sin in our own lives. Um, and so that's how we can respond. When we see God's majesty, when we pray to him uh, as he rejoices in his works, as we rejoice in him, and we pray that God's uh, glory would be honored in us. And so is there hope for the future? Uh, is there hope for the future? So for exiles living in a foreign land, for Christians 
like us living now? The answer is a resounding yes, because our God is the creator God, and he will deliver on his promises. He calls us to be captivated by his awesome majesty. The more we fear him in his immense power, the more we will see we'll have nothing to fear. The more we experience his abundant generosity, the more we will realize we don't need to worry. He will graciously provide for all of our needs. And the more we see his boundless wisdom, the more we will see we can trust him, that he'll work out his plans to bring us home to glory. Let's pray for God's help now. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Father God, help us to see just how glorious and majestic you are as seen in creation. Help us to know your immense power in creating this world. And help us to know your abounding goodness to all who trust in you. Help us to trust your infinite wisdom when we cannot see the bigger picture. And I pray that we would also see the glory of the Lord Jesus, his power, his generosity, his wisdom. And that would encourage us to live wholeheartedly for you. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.